Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shana Tova. One of the most important life lessons I ever learned came from my Little League baseball coach. I was 12 years old and Milt Fox taught me how to break in a baseball glove. Uh, it was not an original method he used, but he articulated beautifully. If you've done this before, you might know. You take shaving cream, right? you rub it into the glove, you massage it into the glove, you tie it up with a rubber band or a belt, and you put it under your mattress, and you sleep on it for a week. At that point, the glove will be ready for use. But to actually get the glove to a point where it is fully broken in, well, that is a lifetime pursuit which can't be measured in days or weeks or months or years, which is why it's so dramatic and traumatic for a ball player when they lose their glove or they have to purchase a new glove. Sure, at some point, you were able to buy a pre-broken-in baseball glove, but that, Milt said, was a shortcut that circumvented this critical life lesson he was trying to communicate. Looking back, it's clear that Milt was teaching us something far more important than how to soften up a leather glove. How do you do anything well? How do you become proficient or master any skill or set of information? It takes patience. It takes time. It takes perseverance. That's what Milt was teaching us. And to paraphrase Dear Evan Hansen, it may be the harder way, it may be the longer way, but it's the right way. Patience, time, perseverance, these words are baked into the game of baseball. The one constant throughout the years, finished the line from James Earl Jones, has been baseball. Field of Dreams, friends. Got to know this movie. It's a game governed not by minutes, hours, quarters, or halves. It's a drama unfolding on a field, one pitch, one swing, one strike, one out at a time. How ironic. How sad, then, it is to witness this season's introduction of the pitch clock. It's purpose to accelerate the game's leisurely pace of play. You know, I mentioned this to uh, someone who's involved in the sports world yesterday in this community that I was talking about this, and you know, it was clear that I was coming down against the pitch clock. And he looked at me like, are you out of your mind? Right? The pitch clock has been great for baseball. As of this current season, pitchers have 20 seconds to throw their next pitch when their runner's on base, 15 seconds when the bases are empty. A catcher needs to be ready to catch within nine seconds left on the clock. 
If either the pitcher or the catcher fails to comply, the umpire calls an automatic ball. As for the batters, they need to be in the batter's box, ready to swing with eight seconds left. If they fail to comply, the umpire will call a strike. Now, for some, these changes were a long time coming. With a dwindling fan base, the game needed to evolve or die. For others, it was, in the language of Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal, another sad cave to technology and our culture of vapid hurrying. That the lack of a clock was part of what makes baseball great, that it ended when it ended. It's this culture of vapid hurrying that undermines so much of what I learned as a 12-year-old baseball player. Now, today, we are often sold a philosophy that claims this one simple trick will make everything faster and easier. Buy this book, and you will learn the five steps to happiness. Watch this video, and you will be fit in seven minutes a day. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's miraculous. Download this app, and you will learn to read books in a fraction of the time that it takes you now. The culture of vapid hurrying says that games, movies, books, anything that requires time and commitment, like baseball, breaking in a glove, or whatever it is, would be better, more successful, if it was shorter and demanded less commitment. Baseball popularity and attendance at games was down, change the game, leave the culture alone. Just make things easier faster, even if it contradicts that spirit of the game itself, a game that was never tethered to time. And it's not just baseball. You've heard from this Bema about the shortage of rabbis in America. By the way, it's not just rabbis. It's clergy across the, 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 the religious movements. How do some rabbinical schools respond, right? An education that's all about mastery, What's the strategy to attract students? Shorten rabbinical school and eliminate a year of study in Israel. Make it easier, less demanding, less rigorous. Even here for years, we have offered a two-year Melton course. Many of you have taken 30 weeks a year, two hours a day for two years. It's intense. Melton felt that the culture, not just ours, that the sort of overall culture of adult learning no longer supported this kind of deep dive, lengthy commitment into Jewish literacy. They're now offering smaller scale, mini masters of this core curriculum. I know it will be great, the curriculum's great, the teachers are great, but it feels like another capitulation to this culture of vapid hurrying. Standing in opposition to this culture is the Jewish tradition, which takes a different approach, a countercultural approach. When it comes to living up to the ideals of our tradition, we see ourselves not as sprinters, but as long-distance runners. Spiritual transformation happens through repetition of sacred acts day after day, year after year. To paraphrase Maimonides, there's no such thing as sudden, drastic, revolutionary change in the world we live in. Trees take time to grow. 
The seasons fade slowly into one another. Day turns into night. Processes take time. There are no shortcuts. There's one person from our history who best exemplifies this countercultural message of our tradition. Rabbi Akiva, the Talmud tells us, began life in complete intellectual ignorance. And he wakes up one day to his own ignorance and he decides that that doesn't need to be a permanent condition of his life. Now, what were Rabbi Akiva's beginnings? It's set up to the age of 40. He had not studied one thing, knew nothing about Judaism. One time he was standing uh, in, near a well in Lida, and he, he sees a stone that's hollowed out. And he says to himself, who hollowed out this stone? How did this stone get sort of etched out? And he was told that it happened because a drop of water fell on this stone day after day, year after year. And they said, Akiva, haven't you read that water wears away the stone from Job? The rabbis go on to describe how Rabbi Akiva heard this verse, decided that if water could penetrate stone the way it, it penetrated the stone he was looking at, then Torah could penetrate his mind and his heart. What did he do? He immediately sat in a children's school and began to study. Thus, Rabbi Akiva's studies began at the age of 40 against a background of complete illiteracy. Having humbled himself to attend school with children, think about how that felt for a 40-year-old to be sitting in a first-grade class. Over a period of 13 years, he completely mastered our tradition and became one of the most significant rabbis in the history of Judaism. Rabbi Akiva saw that water wearing away the stone, and he recognized that this mastery he was seeking, it wasn't going to happen overnight. It would require commitment. It would require discipline. He wasn't looking for a shortcut. He wanted that deep, intense encounter with Judaism. Like the stone, he wanted to be hollowed out, shaped by this encounter over a long period of time. As I get older, I find myself drawn more and more to the story of Rabbi Akiva. Far from being discouraged that by the fact that my runway to master Judaism, to learn all I need or want to know about this tradition is actually shrinking every year we arrive at this moment. The experience of life with all the blessings, with all the challenges, with all the opportunities have inspired me to double down on a teaching from my revered rabbi, my revered teacher, Chancellor Ismar Shorsh, who said, Judaism is nothing if not a lifelong repetition of sacred acts that have the power to imbue our mundane lives with touches of eternity. It doesn't really work unless we practice it daily. By the way, just parenthetically, Chancellor Shorsh wrote that in the Devar Torah for Rosh Hashanah years ago, and he was reflecting on Cal Ripken breaking the record of you know, most consecutive games, right? The need for endurance. That's a gift to all you Orioles fans out there. I want to feel that touch with eternity 
Chancellor Schorsch speaks about. To connect with something that is bigger than myself. And to do so, I have actually surprised myself over the years and gone deeper into Jewish learning, Jewish prayer, and Jewish observance to practice it more intensely daily, even devotedly. The story of Rabbi Akiva resonates deeply in me, that it takes years for drops of water to hollow out a rock. There are no shortcuts. That's the countercultural value proposition of the Jewish tradition, and it inspires me. Maybe you too are inspired by the story of Rabbi Akiva. You believe that there's something here that will motivate you to live not just a good life, but a sacred, a holy life. And you feel that this is the year to go deeper into our tradition. But you don't know where to begin. So I want to tell you about the most important and memorable meeting I had last year. I don't know if this family's here. Parents of a B'nai Mitzvah student in the upcoming year came to see me. They wanted to speak about the B'nai Mitzvah process and how they could maximize the meaning of the process. They were essentially saying to me that they knew their child would master his Torah reading. They knew he or she would be great with the Haftarah, that they would give a phenomenal Devar Torah, that, that they would thrive the morning of their B'nai Mitzvah. But what about the year leading up to it? What about the preparation as a family? What could they be doing? They understood that it could be, that it should be a transformative experience. But how? What are the things that they should be thinking about? The ritual acts they could incorporate into their home life. Mitzvot they could be performing, books they could be reading, films they could be seeing, etc. So I brought some of the, the typical talking points we use at the fifth grade session that we do with parents introducing the process. Here are five things you could do. But these parents, they wanted more. So I gave them more. I broke out some of the materials we use in our Pathways program, our program for, Jew, for people who want to become Jewish. We use a framework where each month is an opportunity to learn some new Jewish skill perform some new mitzvah obligation, engage with Judaism on some communal level. We have a document we distribute filled with Jewish book titles, Jewish films, Jewish cultural experiences around New York City that we encourage people to take advantage of through the process. I gave the parents all of this, not to do everything on the list, but to do some of the things. Read some of the books see some of the films as a family. And as I reflected on this conversation after, I realized that these are the conversations that we should be having with each and every one of you as families or as individuals. You are here. By virtue of the fact that you are here, this means something to you. You are actually countercultural. Most Jews in America don't affiliate with synagogues. What do you want from your Jewish life? Do you want more? I hope so. How can you increase the opportunities for Jewish learning and living in your life? 
And do you know even where to begin? Please, don't hear judgment in that question. It comes literally from a place of wanting to meet you where you are. So here's the deal that I'm prepared to offer you this year. If you or your family want to have a conversation about rebooting your Jewish journey and what that journey might look like over the next months or years, similar to the conversation I had with the parents of the B'nai Mitzvah student, then I want to meet with you. And I want to help you take a few steps further down that road. Now, I know what you're thinking. There are a lot of us, and there's only one of you. How are you going to make that happen? Here's the answer. I have no idea. I know three things. Number one, got a great intern, right? Even better assistant named Paul who's going to schedule all this. Number two, this, as Rabbi Cosgrove and I often say to each other, this is the business we've chosen. Shepherding people along the journey. And if hundreds and hundreds of you want to have this conversation, well, we should only have such high-class problems here at Park Avenue Synagogue. And finally, number three, because we're all optimists at the beginning of the new year, we'll figure it out. Your side of the bargain, you didn't think this was one-sided, did you? Your side of the bargain is that I ask you to spend some time with loved ones over the holiday and discuss what Judaism means to you. Are you happy where you are? Do you want more from this tradition? Maybe you want to incorporate the recitation of daily blessings in your life to deepen your practice of gratitude. Perhaps you're thinking about making Jewish choices about the food you put in your mouth. Maybe this is the year you decide to resume your Jewish education that ended when you were 13 by enrolling in a class at the synagogue. Troubled by the news coming out of Israel? Then maybe this is the year to travel with us in the spring to better understand the fault lines and the struggles and the blessings and the opportunities of the Jewish homeland. The what? It actually doesn't really matter. The goal, to quote Rabbi Arnold Jacob, Arnold Jacob Wolf, is to walk the road of Judaism. Some of the mitzvot, some of the obligations, some of the opportunities are light, some are heavy, some we will never lift. Wherever you are on that road, whatever it is within your capacity to lift, we're here to help. As a wise man once said to me, synagogues are in the retail business. We create Jews, one Jew at a time. Patience, time, perseverance. That's how you get from point A to point B in anything, not by taking shortcuts. And I was fortunate to learn that lesson almost 45 years ago on a baseball field in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with a brand new baseball glove and a coach who understood life in ways that I am confident I didn't fully appreciate at 12 years old. And if the metaphor of the glove doesn't work for you, then allow me to conclude 
with a more traditionally Jewish image to work with. It's one of my favorites, and I learned it years ago from another coach, my teacher and my first boss, Rabbi Gordon Tucker. The Torah tells us that when ascending the altar, the priests are not allowed to use steps. They're only allowed to go up to the altar by way of a ramp. Now, why is that? Why is a ramp preferable to a ladder? What's the difference? So Rabbi Tucker teaches that the Hasidic master, Isaac Mayer of Gore, the Gur Rebbe, posed this question. Picture yourself blindfolded, he said, and you have two options to ascend something, ascend a structure. One option is to use a ladder, which, by the way, is the quickest way to the top, right? You look at a mountain, the quickest way is to go straight up. And the other option is to use a long and winding ramp. The ladder allows you the, the luxury of being able to count each step, and by keeping track of the steps, you will be able to look ahead and look back and see exactly how far you've come and exactly how far you have to go. It could be both good and it can both be challenging. And this approach, the Torah tells us, is not the way to go up to the altar. The right way is to take the ramp. It is, for one, a longer journey, for sure. But more importantly, you will not and you should not measure your progress by constantly assessing how far you've come and how far you have yet to go. All you will know is that you are going in the right direction, and that is up. I love this image of the ramp. For my own spiritual journey and for the work I am blessed to do with this sacred community, I share this image with you as a way to, for you to think about your own spiritual journey and the path that you will take towards imbuing your lives with touches of eternity. May 5784 be a year when we all walk the road of Judaism, picking up and carrying what we can while ascending that ramp of Jewish life together. It may be the hard way. It may be the long way. But one thing I know is that it is the right way. Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah, El Bekur Shul. Hallelujah.